Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM. Welcome to Medicine on Call, where it's all about living the solutions. This is Dr. Elena George, and today I have a special guest on a slightly different show because we're going to speak with an author who's just written a book about treating pain, but without using medication. We've done a few shows now using an alternative approach to pain control, specifically the CBD and, and cannabinoid uh, medications that work in tandem with their, with our our endocannabinoid system. But I think today is really interesting because we're not talking about medication anymore. We're talking about how the power of the mind and the body is a technique to stop pain. And Dr. Campbell has written a book um, called The Language of Pain, which I really find interesting because he's not only talking about it, but he treats patients. And, you know, one of the things as physicians, Dr. Campbell, I think what we notice is that if we listen to our patients, that's part of what what is important and entailed in actually treating a patient. It's not just prescribing medication. It's being a, a safe space, a place for patients to let loose and talk about what's really bothering them. So I want to welcome you to the show today. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on, and I'm interested to learn more about you and about your book, The Language of Pain. Well, thank you for having me, Dr. George. Um, I'm really glad to be on your program. Well, tell us a little bit about your your movement. I mean, you're a family medicine physician. You started, I assume, in a standard practice. How did you come about specializing in pain, in, in pain management? Well, I, I guess it first started um, in, in, when I was newly qualified. I I wanted to get into family medicine, called general practice in the UK and South Africa at the time. And um, I applied quite boldly at a very established practice, um, thinking, well, you know, the worst that they can say is, is no. And to my surprise, they actually took me on. And I was by far the most junior, basically starting out, right? And um, I think certain things happened along the way, uh, I believe, rather, uh, that shifted me uh, towards the counseling side. So when when I was nearly qualified, obviously happy to be, uh, you know, uh, starting my profession and so forth, I didn't see myself as a counselor per se, but it's also naive to believe that you can be a family physician and not counsel, you're doing it all the time. But I'm talking more about counseling in the psychological sense where one is taking on a topic, subject, or condition and having a sizable, uh, or, yeah, sizable session with the patient. So what happened over time was um, these very established physicians, really busy, lots of patients. I was building up a practice. Some of their patients would come to me, but nearly always for counseling over time. And I thought this very strange because, um, you know, the physician was not on holiday and so forth. And sometimes it's hard to get a booking. Um, but they, they were available and they were very happy with their physicians. 
On the other hand, the physicians themselves were quite happy for their patients to meet, see me for this other, you know, they called it mind stuff or psychological stuff. And part of the reason being is because the medical model at the time was not really favorable if you did counsel a lot. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought, well, I've got the time, and I saw the, patient, the patients. And then eventually I was wondering, oh, why, you know, so many came. And I, I confronted a few people. And one of them said, it's because, Dr. Campbell, you have got the face that says, tell me about it, which I thought pretty strange. South Africans are quite bad outspoken compared to Canadians, and they'll say things like that. And um, and I realized, you know, in the beginning, I thought, well, is this such a winner for me right now? But I, I persevered, and I thought, look, as long as I'm adding value, I'm doing quite well. And um, I can learn a lot. And of course, I didn't have much life experience to draw on, but I've got a, a, a sizable knowledge of literature, and I would use illustrations from literature to make a point because people don't feel threatened by that. So there was always this um, element, or well, more than an element, the sizable psychological counseling, uh, mostly anxiety, um, and uh, depression and so forth. And then I, well, all physicians actually default, default mode is cognitive behavioral therapy because it's rational, it's uh, realistic, it's been widely studied and, and widely documented. So then I started taking courses in um, CBT and that of course gave me a much better grounding and confidence. And then I emigrated to Canada in 1996. I had not done uh, pain uh, medicine per se as a specialty, but uh, I had a few patients, and I I suppose like everyone else, I muddled on as best I could. But what happened in Canada was I was um, asked to consider joining a multidisciplinary pain management clinic. And um, I was quite intrigued by this. People, of course, uh, physicians uh, report widely that uh, in North America that they are slightly uncomfortable to moderately uncomfortable dealing with chronic pain patients because they feel that they are underinformed. There are other problems as well. Our uh, current medical delivery model really precludes the adequate and thorough teaching needed with lots of repetition for chronic pain patients because um, of the problems they face. So it's always been as an aside or on the back burner. Mm -hmm. Now, every pain management physician I have spoken to does not, there's not one who seriously believes you can get any type of meaningful healing without this, I'd say it's more than an aspect, without this sizable chunk of the treatment, and yet we have a scenario where it's not properly taught um, um, at university level, and undergraduate level. I've lectured um, second-year residents, and it doesn't seem to have improved much since I qualified in 1981. So um, 
there are there are reasons that I think one of the reasons I've also worked in opioid reduction programs, and one of the reasons we saw this huge ex, uh, uh, growth in opioids is well, firstly from the marketing of big pharma, of course, mm-hmm. and secondly is because it is much easier to write a script for chronic pain than uh, than to teach or coach, if you like, um, and motivate people to do this um, this other aspect of chronic pain. Particularly if one feels that one, you know, is uncomfortable about it in the first place. So I became fascinated because firstly I was part of an organization where the results were, I thought, very good. Um, we were well-resourced, and the key factor, I think, was that we had a lot of time with the patient. And as we see the progression of time, less and less time with the patient, more and more tests, more and more uh, medical legal due diligence done and so forth, this becomes a two things. One, one is a sort of unsatisfactory um, encounter from the patient's point of view. And secondly, we we doing less of our clinical hands-on work, which in itself is very therapeutic for the patient, and more and more sort of sending to you know occupational therapy or for this assessment or that assessment, to the point where I recently had to go into a walk-in clinic because my own doctor was away, and I saw someone uh, who was very newly qualified, I suspect, and um, she actually sat, um, and the way the room was organized, in a corner uh, facing her computer with her back to me. Now, I understand this sort of thing it happens more and more, but I, I was thinking as I left there, smiling to myself, in my own situation, I would find that difficult to do because I'd see some of my dead professors in my head shaking their head at me, losing that patient physician contact, which is really a major part of the healing, as we know. Oh, absolutely. So I don't want to be seen or to, to sort of, you know, dumping on a later generation, but I think we're so focused on the algorithms, the tick boxes, the due diligence, the regulatory uh, compliance, which is, of course, all of which is important, that we kind of lose that, uh, well, I don't want to use the word magic, but uh, this this uh, phenomenon of that uh, mysterious bond where just actively listening and supporting and validating in itself can go a long way towards healing. I absolutely agree with that. Let's Let's stop there and take our first break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Are you having problems with persistent bad breath, constant throat clearing, hoarseness, a cough that won't go away, a sore throat, or a feeling that something's always stuck in your throat? Why not find out what the problem is so it can be fixed? At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking time to work with our patients as a team to get to the root of the problem. Make an appointment today to see why Peachtree ENT Center 
is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. This is Dr. George from Medicine on Call. Each week I speak about our healthcare system and the problems with it. One of the main problems is the doctor-patient relationship. I've found that patients really crave time, the time to ask their doctor questions, and physicians crave the time to answer those questions in a thorough manner. Towards that end, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is pleased to announce a new video telemedicine service. We now offer consultation for second opinions and for people who'd like to learn more and ask questions about how to navigate the healthcare system in a cost-effective and efficient manner. Go to peachtreeentcenter.video-visits.com to learn more. You're listening to Medicine on Call, where healthcare, business, and current events connect. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Dr. Trevor Campbell, the author of The Language of Pain, Fast Forward Your Recovery to Stop Hurting. Before the break, I think you were doing a very eloquent uh, job of explaining what I talk about, you know, many, many times, what I have talked about many, many times on my show, which is the power of the doctor-patient relationship and the, the aspect of time. And I think you really took a, you nailed it on, on the head when you said it's, People are interested in getting people in and out because they don't have a lot of time with them. And you're missing the most important parts of the doctor-patient relationship, which is to get to know what motivates the patient. And in your book, I mean, it seems to me that part of cognitive behavioral therapy is ex- letting the patient expound on what, they, what they're feeling. You give some examples of chronic pain patients, and I like your book because it gives us examples. It's not dry it's not about yes. let, let medical ease. It's actually about its stories. And I think people can really understand and, and relate to people who are like them. I mean, I've operated on patients and had, you know, everything clinically looks great, but the patient still has pain or they're still unhappy. And it's not the physical side. It's something deeper than that. Tell us a little bit about how you, you know, what your experience has been with people and their emotions and how their emotions are connected to pain. Okay. Um, well, of course, pain itself is, is an emotional uh, entity. Um, it's interesting that the actual word comes from Purina, or I'm maybe mis- mispronouncing it, but it means punishment. So there's always this concept that one is being punished in our folklore, um, and that you know people will often think they let some people. Uh, they somehow deserve it in some twisted way um, and not see it for what it is. Now, in my book, unfortunately, I would have liked to have done a more thorough treatment of CBT. Obviously, it's a huge field, but it's also challenging to get that in one single book, let alone a couple of chapters. So I thought rather than do a really bad job, why don't I just give some examples, particularly for those people who have not had any sessions, just to whet their appetite and, and explain real-life situations where something that's a trivial mistake can lead to lots of discomfort, sometimes for months or even years, and disrupt relationships and everything. 
I think the central problem with chronic pain is that people feel isolated. Part of the problem is they feel they should not accept even invitations when they get them uh, because they're no fun and because uh, who wants to hang out with somebody who's got a problem and, and things like this. But when we think of our own friendships, if we had a friend who suffered a disability or um, an amputation, of course, you know, friendships may have a lot of sterner stuff. We we would we 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 friends. It's not like this is going to a, a game changer. But the point is that they withdraw. We know that isolation with pain, and remember these people are mostly sleep disruptive. They have uh, often major depression, and they have anxiety disorders, and um, so they're not. They're not doing well to begin with. Now, when one ruminates alone, um, you tend to you tend to be more bleak about your your situation. And so, what happens is they they do certain things like catastrophizing, where they're building up um, small incidents to almost life-threatening situations. And this is very unhealthy because that increases the general stress level, which I like to call allostatic load because it reminds us that it's a load we're carrying and that it has huge consequences. So I have to confront when a patient says, you know, the pain's increasing, uh, I think um, I'm going to not be able to walk. Well, there's a lot of people who have, have had a crushed leg and um, they have ongoing pain. And they determine they're going to be as mobile as possible, and they go through their entire life being mobile, although with limp, with a limp or some other disability. So it's con- it's it's confronting uh, or challenging uh, thinking, what we call cognition. So in a session, I would be a referee and say, well, why does this why does increased pain mean? You're not going to be able to walk. There's no evidence for that. And then they come around to seeing that because in their ruminations, they do they don't challenge anything. It's kind of just a wash. It's like this tsunami of negativity that's almost unstoppable. Mm-hmm. So my job as a coach, what I also would do is give them a lot of homework. There's a saying in cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, one can say as a therapist to people, um, to patients, I'm, I'm prepared to work very hard, but I'll be the second hardest working person in the room. So we give them homework to show us examples of how their thinking is changing. Because when you look at mood, behavior, and thinking, the one that's the biggest problem is is mood because otherwise, you, I mean, if you say to a person who's depressed, well, the thing to do is to just be happy. Obviously, that's not very helpful advice because how? So we can manipulate the mood or change it. I like the idea of manipulating because then it's a targeted intervention by getting them to be, be behaving certain way, like getting more social activity. The new happiness theory from the 19th in the 1990s in the psychology field showed us that most of our happiness is based on our social interactions at every, every level, from acquaintance to passerby, you know, even just greeting people on the way to work mm-hmm. can improve your mental state. So, 
So we use the one uh, the, out of the behavior, the mood, and the, um, the thinking or cognition, as we call it. We can make improvements on the other by changing uh, one or more variable, and therefore it's a very useful tool. Um, I, I don't know if that's making it clear enough, but uh, that's basically what we do. We challenge entrenched thinking mostly, uh, and one has to understand the context that this is usually done by rumination in a, with lots of other problems. Uh, you know, often these people, uh, these patients aren't working or they're working part-time. There's financial problems, marital problems, family issues. The psychosocial, it's a, in the biopsychosocial model of illness, very often the psychosocial factors way outweigh the biomedical. And I think that's another reason, if I may come back to this original point, why physicians aren't um, very comfortable with it. A, they haven't been trained, so that'll always lead to discomfort. But secondly, they say, well, hell, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a sociologist, but uh, we're dealing with people. Mm-hmm. You can't also can't escape from it, and you don't have need a sociology degree and a psychologist to delay the, the, the onset of your career. But the pertinent factors need to be looked at, and that's why a multidisciplinary team can have such good results. You know, they say it takes a village to bring up a child. That's something. Mm-hmm. It, you know, some, maybe it takes a few people to treat chronic pain. I would say time is a huge factor. The number of people I've seen that's quite hostile when they come in, by the time I've done the assessment, mm-hmm. they're in tears and they say, thanks for listening and not changing the subject. It's, it's because about, they've never had that. Yeah, I find that too. I mean, uh, let's, take our, let's take a small break um, and come yeah. back because I think that's really important. The, the ability right. to be heard and to have somebody not, well, I guess judge you or cut you off, I mean, it's like a major thing. So let's take a break and come back. You're listening to Medicine on Call. You can catch the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Dr. Trevor Campbell. And before the break, we were talking about, I think, every patient I've ever spoken to, the fact that they always, that when you have a connection with them, they always say the same thing, you listen to me. And mm-hmm. to me, it's like they've been in this mode where they get no one's listened to them, no one really puts value on what they're saying. And is it anger? Is it depression? What's the thing or a feeling of helplessness? What do you think is, what have you found is the the crux of what kind of the nucleus of what generates this? It's like throwing a pebble in an ocean, in a pond, and then it just ripples out. What do you think is the genesis? What have you found to be the most common reason that they end up in this rut? I think, I think, um, you know, there's so many factors that point to isolation. I always say, look, I'm, I'm at my basic training as GP, and there's two things. Um, obviously, when one studies the anatomy of our bodies, we were made for moving. And when you study the behavior with all the languages in the, in the world, we are told that 70% is nonverbal anyway, so we were meant to communicate. And I think that the real pain is physical pain plus isolation. And isolation comes from having the feeling of not being believed because it's the same story. The, often the physician doesn't know what else to do. The opioids are being regulated. The, even other drugs aren't working. Um, there's not a lot of the non-pharmacological stuff going on. And that's why people really warm to one when you have an hour and a half with them. Mm-hmm. And that's the first encounter. Um, the other thing is the withdrawal from society, as I've already mentioned, that is responsible for most of our happiness. I mean, if I were to lie on a sofa, for example, I'm not suggesting anyone with chronic pain lies on the sofa all day, but if I were without chronic pain and sufficient funds and people who love me, uh, but I don't really get out much or meet new people, that wouldn't be a great life either. So you've got that layer on it as well. Um, one of the things that struck me is they even lose um, faith in the medical profession. And now there could be very various uh, theories about that. I'm not saying they have reason to, but they often go from assessment to assessment and they tell you, well, nothing changed. And then I said, well, I, I would say, well, did you follow the advice? Well, as far as I could, yes. Quite a few patients said to me, um, they looked at some of their reports, and, often, and I'm not trying to lay anything on specialists and other people who are trying to help, but they said often they read a report and they know the story they, give, they gave, and they had to look again to see if it was the correct name on the report. They couldn't relate to their notes. Now, it's very different if you cannot relate to your medical notes because it's a sort of genetic uh, assessment or something, you know, the technical language, and it's difficult, right? But when they couldn't even relate to the narrative because, of course, we as physicians, we make notes, A, for ourselves, the patient. Um, why I mention uh, ourselves first is because I'm, I'm reminded that Medical legally, the notes are, are, are the physicians, but the, physician, but the patient can have a copy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, 
the medical legal authorities, if we fall in their hands, the regulatory authorities. So we've got all as as the sort of field becomes more specialized and I might add more demanding. I mean, what the regulatory bodies expect from us now, very different from 35 years ago. And I don't think it's just an age thing on my part. So you've got all these these stakeholders and the patient just feels like lost and abandoned. And they, well, maybe they don't use the word abandoned, but they just feel like no one's listening. And I think that that's really a big part of the, of the multidisciplinary program um, is that you've got the backup, but you also make notes uh, that, that they, you make notes that for them are relatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was important. I mean, I, I, I can tell you, I, in my, some of my notes, I would have a word in a sentence in inverted commas, and one or two of my colleagues would say, I'm just not sure what that is. I said, that is something the patient made a huge um, deal about, and I feel it's relevant, and I can explain that if it ever came to that. Mm-hmm. And they said, but why would you do that? I said, because there was real emotional charges. So when I could see them six weeks later, I would bring it up and they say, you wrote that down? And they were moved. I said, it's important to you. I haven't figured out what it means exactly. But the fact that you you get your buy-in, um, it may sound sneaky to some people, but it's just what you learn in the trenches. I mean, the goal here is to make the person better off for having been in program or if you're seeing them having their their situation change. It's not like I wrote exactly what they said, but certain key words I would say it's described as this and I would go back to that Mm -hmm. because I could see that, and I mean, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to um, give the impression here like, you know, that the guy knows it all. It's just that I had the luxury of time to even do that. My colleagues don't, I think if, if they wanted to, right? And, well, yeah, I mean, if, I mean, you're practicing in Canada now, correct? Yes, yes. I mean, I think we are, medicine globally has been, it's like a cookie cutter at this point where it's about getting yes. somebody in and getting someone out. You just described someone sitting at a, at a computer with their back to the patient. I mean... <laughs> What happened to hands-on? I've, I've had patients come and tell me they've never been physically examined by their doctor. I mean, what are you doing yes. in there if you're not even touching the patient and doing a physical yes. exam? And I listened to a radio show a couple of de- nights ago, and I was kind of floored. It was an oncologist telling, talking about how they're using mid-level providers to do all of the work. So that means take the history, do the physical, and then they would just come in and just, you know, I guess do the plan. That's such a – I can't even imagine practicing medicine that way, especially oncology, where you have someone emotionally devastated yes. and there's just Absolutely. a conveyor belt. You're not making anybody better. You're just putting up chemo or radiation and hoping for the best. I, patients need to demand more, though, honestly. Yes, yes. And I think also, you know, what you, we've seen, obviously medicine is uh, – Big business, right? Yeah. And I think as it's, uh, doctors really worldwide, I don't, I mean, I haven't studied it, but we're individuals. They, you know, people who work with physicians will often say it's like herding cats. Mm-hmm. We like to be individual. We say, I think we don't want the soapbox stuff. Yeah. But then what happens is larger state, uh, groups of stakeholders end up having the say 
because it is much more structure, I guess, and, and what have you, funding mm-hmm. that. And then one ends up with, I, I, I say, I admit now, I'm in my early 60s, and I would find it very hard to rely on someone's history because I know one question can lead me to an important but major detour right there and then. That's exactly And I wouldn't have the confidence that the person doing it, not that they, I didn't think they were good, but do they have the experience to know when to do that? And it's also the touch. I mean, it's, it's the same person who's coming up with the plan mm-hmm. in conjunction with the patient who is putting on the hands, if, if one can use that term. Um, so, so for me, it would be difficult. And if it came to that, well, I would, I would struggle. Let's leave it at that. Uh, to put it mildly, but then when you think about how the system is set up with all these electronic medical record systems, these are algorithms yes. and templates. So there is no, you know, tailoring the question for a patient. You're trying to get certain certain boxes checked, like you described. The duration of the yes. symptom, the degree, you know, of the pain, it's just check marks. You know, you have a smiley face. If you've ever been to the hospital, look at what the nursing staff have to put on in terms of patient uh, if they're having pain. Yes. And it's just a smiley face. I mean, what is that? <laughs> it's like there's yeah, no there's, yeah, there's, I, I mean, I often think, look, when I see things, and when we all see a lot, I, I think, uh, you know, this needs more work. That's just me. <laughs> but again, I was brought, brought up in an old school sort of system. And I mean, who would think if you qualify in the 80s, it's old school, but these days it is. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think even the teaching can be sustained, like, or so I'm told. I, I don't know enough about these things. But um, it, it, it has changed. And I'm, I'm always reminded, you know, um, of the ghost in the machine. You know, we're not just electrochemical impulses and stuff, and that that extra quantum, uh, so we think of quantum, quanta as very small in physics, but this is a Latin quanta, how much, that extra how much that we can't measure is substantial in healing. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I don't have to prove it to myself. I may have difficulty proving it to other people, because I may be disbelieved, but for myself, I, I just, you know, I, it's game, set, match. I'm, I absolutely agree with you, and I, I mean, I'm part of that old school set as well, and I think there's an absolute disconnect or there's a, a demarcation between folks who have been educated, physicians, I mean, and they're in their mm-hmm. 40s and up versus ed- physicians who are educated more recently. It's a complete difference. And I think it is the education system. I think it goes back to the primary education system. You talked about a second ago or about how being away from people, having no social interaction, is the key to setting up whether you're happy or not. And I'm sure you've right. read these articles where people are more lonely now than they've ever been because of social yes. media. Yes. Then, I mean, that to yes. me seems there's going to be an explosion of people oh, yeah. in pain self-medicating with God knows what. And I want to get your take, actually, as a side a side venture. Well, we have to take a break, so hold that thought. Okay. So let's take our break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. From treatment of sinusitis with balloon dilation, to minimally invasive office procedures to correct snoring, 
Peachtree ENT Center offers state-of-the-art care. We also specialize in price transparency. You'll know the cost of our ENT services before they're rendered, whether you have a high deductible plan or no insurance at all. Make an appointment today to find out why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Trevor Campbell, author, physician, and somebody who really understands what it means to actually treat a patient and to, to understand how to get them better. And before the break, we were talking about our social underpinnings of our society, which used to be human-based. Now it's all virtual. Texting, you sit around, uh, you know, I've seen people sit around a table with each other, texting each other instead of speaking to each other. And if loneliness is the trigger for being removed from society and anxiety and depression being an outgrowth of that, then I think that depression, I'm sorry, that pain is going to be a major, it's going to be an avalanche of people in pain. And before the break, I wanted to ask you what you thought about. Like in our country, there are certain states that are legalizing marijuana, legalizing psychedelic mushrooms, believe it or not, in in, uh, in Colorado. That's not fixing the problem per se, is it? No. Well, you see, I, I look at it more from the chronic pain assessment. Obviously, you know, cannabis um, or cannabinoids, uh, you know, are great for the nausea following chemotherapy for certain conditions that, you know, end stage uh, AIDS and so forth. It certainly have their uses, but I've been always been asked from the chronic pain side of it. And my feeling is um, I don't have, uh, you know, any baggage uh, regarding the substance. But it seems to me the suspicious thing, I get this feeling, well, opioids are going, and now cannabis suddenly makes its entry um you know, that, that is a bit odd for me. Um, I, I was thinking of, um, um, you know, based on the evidence, they've shown that on the pain scale of 10, now that's admittedly a, a subjective scale, the patient decides what level they've got, but it is what we have and it has been used. Uh, I think these scales are often important. But focusing on them on an hour-to-hourly basis is, is, can be very damaging. But they've shown that cannabis at best uh, improves your pain by a half a point out of 10, which will put in the same category as codeine, I believe. My concern with, with cannabis and cannabinoids in chronic pain uh, is the fact that it causes Sleep dysregulation. Now, apparently, that's being revisited, I'm told, by a person in sleep medicine. Um, so, if you are pain, or if you are sleep dysregulated, do you need something that may interfere with that? Usually, younger people report, "Oh no, it puts them to sleep." But I'm talking about for the older people, it, it, it disturbs the sleep. I mean, you see this clinically, so I'd be very surprised if you know research shows conclusively that it doesn't. Although, as always, one must keep an open mind and review again when there's new information, which obviously I intend to do. The other thing is that it doesn't help with depression or dysphonia. 
uh, which is a form of milder depression, which we often see chronic pain patients have. And, um, you know, the, and then lastly, um, anxiety. It tends to cause longer-term anxiety. Now, the whole thing was, was supposed to be chill, in inverted commas, and it sort of makes you relax in real time. But the rebound effect, so I, I have never really been overexcited based on the, on, on the, on the reviews I have seen and on these studies I have seen. Now, I'm not the best person to ask, I have to caution, but I, it's, it, I think the expectation, uh, are possibly unrealistic. If it works, fine. We see a lot of work being done on CBD oil and so forth. Um, I can only say I keep an open mind, but at the moment, I don't think it's the answer. Well, I, I think actually the question is how you dose it. So it, it depends on the individual patient. And if there's yes, no THC, yes. then there is no uh, neurological or change in your mental acute alertness if it's CBD no. oil. So I think yes. that the, the, probably the, the jury's out on it because it depends on... Yes. Who does the study and how much yeah, the person is given? Right. And but at least you can say that it's not addictive, and that is a plus. That is a plus. The other thing is that I'm looking also from the fact that uh, when in Canada you can't give us prescription, they call it a document because they recognise this. When I, I once did a review paper for an organisation, and they were, at that time there were believed to be over 200 active ingredients that we know almost nothing about, mm-hmm. and now it's over 500. You go to the CME, the Continuing Medical Education Conference, um, and you know you hear all the time over 500 uh, substances we don't know about. So there's that kind of caveat in the wings for me as well. But I agree, the THC is it's all about the THC ratio and the um, and and the CBD. The sad thing is that for a lot of lay people. They, if there's something good comes out about the CBD, it may be seen as, um, uh, you know, all cannabinoids are good. I don't know. Well, again, I, I think it depends on who you get it from, right? It, the purity of yes, it, the fact that true, it's true. organic versus some pesticides in it, just like with any yes. medication. Yes, but I yes. would, you know, people need to do their research. And I love the fact that there's more than one way to do this for the individual. Mm -hmm. There's not one way that fits everybody. I don't care who it is. No. Right? And that's the neat part. So for some special group of folks, the prescription route might work for them. For others, it would be cannabinoids. For others, it would be behavioral therapy. So I I think the, the nice part of what you do is that you provide an alternative for people who are really anti-anything going in their body. <laughs> and there are those yes. folks out there, and they're growing, actually. And yes. I say we start off with trying to figure out what the problem is. And I Absolutely. And I quick quick question on that. Do you find that the pain causes the depression and the anxiety, or does the anxiety-depression precede the pain? I, I think it's causal. I think it's as life deteriorates, more pain, more stressors, less uh, socialization, less activity, um, you know, losing one's fitness. And uh, I, I think that is the main depressinogenic side of it, um, although one can never be sure. Um, I think that that develops. 
I mean, really early on in pain, they this time they call depressed, but it gets worse usually with with time. Um, Dr. George, if I may just say something earlier. I mean, sure. nobody, I, 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 my official, well, well, it's not official because I'm, I'm not, um, my, my stance on the, on the cannabinoids is that I would be delighted if there's, if, if it's shown that they do help. Because as, as you point out, you know, the treatment of chronic pain to be successful must be multimodal. Meaning, obviously, a few drugs can be used, cannabis, uh, the, the, the um, non-pharmaceutical uh, or pharmacological treatments as a group are believed to be a core or foundational uh, element of it. But uh, I agree, you know, one, one solution or even a few solutions is, is not going to work for everyone. Exactly. So I, I do watch this sort of ongoing, evolving picture with, with interest. It's just that as things stand now, and it could be just a reflection on me not having read enough, you know, on that yet, you know. Well, I think it's still new, uh, you know. So it's, It is still very new, yes. Just the yes. fact that, first of all, you're open to it. And that's, I don't know if that's a growing thing among physicians in general. And you're right, it's like herding cats in one way. But in another way, I think we're, as a group, we're not really, we don't try new things. I don't think that we think outside the box as much as we should as a group yes. of professionals. And this evidence-based medicine, in my opinion, is laziness because it makes people think that I'm going to do it one way because that's what the evidence says. But the evidence is tainted. If you think about where it's coming from, it's coming from big pharma. So they're always going to say that the medication prescription is the way to go. And they're going to use numbers that keep changing. I remember we were both in medical school having high cholesterol or high blood pressure being obese were much higher. The, the range was higher. And, right, or I should right. say more narrow, I should say, or, or yeah. lower. And they've just increased the catchment for what constitutes obese, what constitutes yes. blood pressure. And that's not coming from a physician. It's coming from big pharma. So we really need to be aware of the numbers yes. and how we're all being manipulated. Yeah, no, there, there's definitely, I mean, if you look at the guidelines for hypertension, diabetes, everything, the bar gets in, becomes more inclusive mm -hmm. of the general population, for sure, yes. Just the fact that you're, that what you do by definition is treating an individual, because when you take that history, that's an individual person, you're getting their story, and you're able mm -hmm. to tailor treatment based on that particular patient, by definition, that carves out a whole niche outside of this algorithm-driven conveyor belt system, and I love that. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the analogy is like we try and normalize uh, as much as we can, uh, you know, not to have all these endless to-do lists, um, you know, teach them the theory, but where they don't have to fill in tables and things every all the time, you know, and pain levels. Because as I say in the book, you, as, as I write in the book, you, um, one drives where one is looking. And if you're doing, I've had patients come in with long lists of hourly pain level variation. Mm -hmm. Now it's already subjective. And so the whole day was spent focused on their pain. Well, 
that's not the way to go. I mean, any therapy that makes a person less fit and less happy, I mean, it should not be protracted. It should be, you know, terminated. Find an alternative, you know. I mean, obviously, some treatments are hard to handle and so forth, but you, you want the end plan to be effective. And, and sometimes this doesn't happen, I see. Understood. You know, the, the last minute that we have is time goes so quickly. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yes. Um, how can people get your book? It's out now, isn't it? Yes, it's on um, it's on Amazon.ca, Amazon.com. Um, there's also a link on the website, Trevor Campbell, MD, without um, any punctuation. Uh, TrevorCampbellMD.com. So um, there's a link to to Amazon if, if they want to buy the book. Do you write um, a blog, or do you have any other places that people can read your stuff? Well, um, if, if the um, this is the start, you know, of the website, so it's not a, a voluminous website, but you can see um, just on a few of the pages what uh, it's, it's kind of my belief where I think medicine can be improved um, it, that I want to expand on. Um, you know, things like education being done, maybe outsourced, but not the history clinical work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that they bring prepared for a lot of the stuff by education experts. It's speculative, it's conjecture. Not everyone's going to agree with it. Nobody ever does, and they're not required to. But I will be, I will be uh, adding content to it. It's just at the moment I'm still with my other job, and um, you know, so I, I want to, um, I won't say grow into it, but phase into it. I totally understand. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. I look forward to having you back on, and if you write any more books, I definitely want to explore that with you. Uh, so thank you so much. Thank you very much, Dr. George. And thank you guys for listening to Medicine on Call. You can listen to the show on Spotify, Stitcher, Google, all the um, social media platforms. And I look forward to coming back on and speaking with you next week. Thank you. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM.